Please hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Take heart, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Well, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. And, uh, thankful, thank the Lord for, for good mothers. And uh, those who faithfully understand what the calling of a mother truly is and who are unashamed to be mothers in this day where our culture hates the idea of being a, a God-centered, Christ-focused mother. Um, we live in a culture that shames the idea of motherhood as if it's some kind of bondage that women need to be liberated from, whereas in fact, that is a lie from the devil and a ploy to bring women into bondage and keep them from living in the freedom that God has ordained for them as mothers. And uh, I think we should take op every opportunity we have to declare that and to affirm mothers in their efforts to be godly mothers. And we want to do that for all of you mothers here this morning. And those of you older mothers, you have a responsibility on you to teach and help the younger mothers learn how to be Christ-centered mothers how to love their husbands and their children, and how to keep their home in a Christ-honoring way. So take that responsibility seriously and, uh, and seek out these younger mothers and help them. And with that said, would you pray with me? And we will turn to the Word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, as our God, our Creator, and as our Redeemer, that you've sent your Son to save us from the ruin and the depravity that we were born into and that we willingly and gladly chose for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that your kindness and your love and your compassion and your grace reached further down than the choices that we made and that you brought us out of our helplessness, Lord, out of our indifference and out of our enmity against you and you made us children of God. Not just making us servants in your house or not simply making us friends but bringing us into your own household as children so that you might be our father that our Lord Jesus Christ would be our brother, even our husband, and that we would be your children. Lord, I thank you for every expression of your tender love that you give us through the things that you've created and ordained in this world. Lord, I thank you for a mother's love. I thank you for my mother, Lord, that she was not perfect, but I never doubted that she loved me and she wanted what was best for me. And um, Lord, I thank you for that. Even that expression of love 
is, is a picture of the love as it exists in you, or that you have ordained that to be a picture, though dim, though imperfect, nevertheless, a picture of your tenderness and your compassion towards those who call upon you. Or that you are a Father who remembers our frame, that we are but dust, and you treat us accordingly, Lord. And so please, God, bless these mothers in this church today. Let them feel refreshed with a sense of their calling to reflect your tenderness and your compassionate love to their children, to help support these children's fathers in raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And uh, Father, may they rest in your great grace through Jesus Christ as the only thing that can strengthen them to do their job of mothering well. Lord, be with them in the pressures and in the duties that come upon them throughout the week and throughout their days. The discouragements and the failings, Lord, let them not weigh them down. Father, give them freedom, give them joy, give them delight and encouragement in fulfilling the work you've entrusted to them. Father, as we turn to your word, as we think upon being born of God and really wanting to be assured that we are your children, Father, I pray that you would give us that grace here this morning. Give us confidence to know whether we have or have not yet been born of God. For those who have, I pray that you would inflame their hearts with a holy zeal to serve you with boldness, Lord, with, with, with all the fullness that belongs to them as those who have the right to become children of God. Father, those who do not know you, those who have not been born of God, I pray that you would help them understand that, help them see that, and more than that, Lord, that you would open their hearts to pay attention to the word of the gospel. And that you would cause them, Lord, this day to be born of your grace and by your spirit. Father, we're praying for miracles. And whether it's the miracle of encouraging the hearts of your people or the miracle of bringing new life to a dead sinner. Either way, it's impossible apart from you. So please work this morning for the glory of your name and let us be reminded that you are truly the God who is in the midst of his people. Father, may we worship and honor you today with full hearts. Clear our minds of all distractions and give us eyes to, eat, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been walking through the opening section of the Gospel of John, I think that we've already gotten a sense of the deep theology that this Gospel presents to us. Already we've been introduced to theological themes like the Trinity, this one God who eternally exists in three persons. We've been introduced to the reality of human depravity 
and human inability, that we cannot will ourselves to be made right with God. We cannot choose to be brought into a right relationship with Him. We are actually utterly dependent upon the sovereignty of God to save us from our ruined condition. We've looked at the necessity of salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then we've seen the need for regeneration, the need to be born again. Now, all of these are pretty weighty theological categories. And in most churches, you will not hear them spoken of much. Uh, But if we're going to be true to the Word of God, we have to go where the Word of God takes us. And this is what we have seen so far. All of these themes are going to be more fully unpacked as we move forward into the gospel. Um, But I just want to point out, we've already seen some pretty great and deep theological uh, statements and declarations being made. You know, the Gospel of John is one of the simplest Gospels that's been written as far as its language and its message is concerned. Anyone can pick up the Gospel of John and read it and clearly understand what it's saying in its overall message. But at the same time, the Gospel of John contains some of the deepest revelations of theology that we have in the New Testament. Now, with that said, it is very important for us to keep in mind that this gospel account is not merely intended to give us theological instruction for theological instruction's own sake. We're going to be digging into some, some rich and deep theology as we work through the gospel of John, but what we need to keep in mind is that none of this theology is being presented to us as an end in itself, right? Our walk through the gospel of John is not designed to be a mere theoretical or academic exercise, The Gospel of John was not written simply to give instruction to the mind so that we would understand deeper truths about God's Word or what He has done for us in Christ. John makes this clear in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he tells us that his purpose behind everything that he has written is ultimately this. It's ultimately that we would believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that by believing, we would be assured of having life in his name. By believing, we would have life in his name. In other words, John is writing not merely to give deep theology, but to encourage and strengthen faith in Christ. So that believers would have greater assurance of the life that they have in him. Now I bring that up to say this simply, to get to this point. If in all of our endeavors to walk through this gospel, the only thing that's being impacted or affected or grown is your uh, conscious understanding of the gospel, your mental grasp of truths, but it's not actually impacting your life, then you're missing the message of the gospel. The gospel of John is falling on you as if it's falling on flat ears. If all you're doing is hearing me preach a sermon and feeling a little conviction every now and then, but never actually taking up the reins of the word of what's revealed here in this, in this gospel account and driving them forward into every area of your life, then you are not living in the fullness that God intends for you to live as a result of reading this gospel. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones said it perfectly when he wrote that John's... Now listen to this. I didn't have time to put it on a slide, so you're going to have to listen carefully. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on John 20, verse 31, John's primary purpose in writing this letter was pastoral. 
He was not writing merely for the sake of providing a theological disquisition. I love that word. Not a theological treatment. He was not even concerned primarily with the enlightenment of the minds of these people. He was concerned with that, but only in order that it might lead to something deeper and more profound. Namely, he says, their enjoyment of the Christian life. In other words, Martin Lloyd-Jones continues, John was concerned with the whole matter of assurance. You know, God's purpose in writing this letter to us is that we would have deeper assurance of the realities of the gospel and of our place in Christ. And in having deeper assurance of that truth, of those realities in our own lives, we would live the Christian life with joy. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says there, John's purpose is to help believers enjoy the Christian life, which only comes about as a fruit of being assured that we are in Christ. I think that's right, and the more that I read the Gospel of John, the more I see the purpose of John being in line with the purpose for which he wrote the letter of 1 John. 1 John 5.13, the Apostle John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, or in order that, that's the purpose statement. Why have I written these things? It's so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's assurance, right? That's being assured that you have come to possess something in the Lord Jesus Christ that at some other time beforehand in your life you did not possess. John's writing this letter so that believers would come to the point where they know that they know that they know that in Christ Jesus they have eternal life. That's the issue of assurance. And I believe that's the same purpose for which John is writing this gospel. Or at least one element of it. If you think of it in two prongs, one side of the gospel of John is written to convince unbelievers that they are lost and on their way to hell and they need what Jesus Christ has done in order to save them from what they deserve. That's one side of it. The other side is the Gospel of John was written for believers to encourage them in the truth and help them walk in the fullness of what Christ has purchased for them through his blood and has guaranteed for them by his resurrection. There should be an amen to that. Last week, I know you guys were asleep. You're a little sleepy. Are you guys a little sleepy today? I felt a little sleepy last week. I'm not feeling sleepy today. That is God's purpose, really, behind every letter that's in the New Testament. Do you know that? Every letter that we hold in our hands in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, was given to give assurance to God's people of their right standing with God in Christ. God doesn't want us walking around in despair and despondent and wondering always whether or not God's for us or against us. God wants us to rest in, in a sense of assurity that that, that God truly is for us as we are in Christ. Now, you might be asking why I'm coming here. Why are we going there? What's fascinating to me is that some of the statements in the scriptures that are designed by God to give us the greatest assurance of our standing in Christ actually wind up becoming one of the greatest hindrances to people gaining assurance. For example, 
It's fascinating to me that when we start talking about what John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 is talking about, which is the need for regeneration and the sovereignty of God as the one who is in control of who receives the blessing of regeneration, who gets born again, that's in God's control. As we start talking about that kind of stuff, the most common reaction that I find among people is not of a strengthened faith or of a greater sense of assurance in Christ. Most often, people react to that doctrine or those doctrines with greater doubts or with greater fears or a greater sense of discouragement in Christ. Now, I smell in that the work of the devil, right? The fact that the things... It's, it's ironic that the things that Scripture uh, has given to us as, as the, the means that bring us to greater or fuller assurance of our salvation in God are actually turned around by the enemy to become the very things that hinder us attaining assurance. Doctrines like election, doctrines like Christ's suffering for his elect people, doctrines like God's sovereignty and salvation, or this doctrine of being born of God, regeneration. You know, God did not reveal these truths to us in order to unsettle our faith in Him. These very truths were written to be something like stakes of assurance that the Holy Spirit takes in His hand and drives down into our hearts and causes us to rest more soundly in the promises and in the faithfulness of our God. All the statements that we have looked at in John 1, 12 to 13 about being born of God, about God's sovereignty over the whole thing, they are designed to strengthen the assurance of those who have experienced it. So if you have experienced being born of God, these words were written so that you would be more confident in God's faithfulness and in God's devotion to your salvation. They weren't designed to weaken the faith of true believers. You guys following me on that? Yeah. See, somebody's like, yes, please move on. Now, I want to make something clear at this point. These things were not written to unsettle the faith of true believers. But if you are not a true believer, these very truths will be what unsettles you. The sovereignty of God for the child of God is a reason for that child to rest in the sovereign, powerful hands of his or her heavenly father. The sovereignty of God for one who has not come to know God as father through Christ is a terrifying concept. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Behold, the kindness of and severity of God. Now, I don't mean by that statement that, an, that a true believer might not be rattled a little bit when they come into contact with doctrines like God's absolute sovereignty over their lives. But for the true believer, they will continue to reason with God until God brings to them a settled sense of confidence in that doctrine. God did not reveal these things in order to weaken the faith of true believers, even though that may happen for some who might think they are believers but are not. 
But for the believer, this revelation of being born of God is meant and intended to build up within us an assurance of God's goodness towards us and of our being related to him as his children. To strengthen us and to cause us to have what we need, the encouragement that we need to rise up in all the fullness of the rights that we have as the children of God. So, if we've been born of God, then through Christ we have become children of God. And when we are confident and assured that the reality of our lives is that we have indeed become children of God, then we will have the courage that we need to press the rights of being a child of God into every area of our lives. So, for example, when we are assured that God truly has caused us to be born again, that we genuinely are His children, then we can press the rights to claim ourselves as children of God over against all of our doubts, over against all of our fears, over against our anxieties and insecurities. We can press the rights that we have as children of God over against our discouragements that we receive from the world or the disappointments that life throws at us or even against those areas of our lives where we know we have failed, where we know we are not worthy of being called a child of God. If God has caused us to be born again, then we can, even in that moment of our failings, declare over our failings, I am a child of God and I am going to press the rights that belong to me as His child, even against my sense of failure. If we are assured of having been born of God, then with assurance we can take hold of the authority Christ has given us and we can wage war against all of these doubts and all of these insecurities that are intended to do one thing, cause us to distrust or doubt God's goodness or faithfulness to us. This is important to grasp as we're talking about assurance. It's what enables us to preach the truth to ourselves and to declare with confidence and with joy that we know we're not children of God because of our own doings. We know we're not children of God because of our own goodness. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man that has caused us to be in a right relationship with God. But it's because Jesus Christ alone and because of God's work of causing us to be born again, because of that, no matter how we feel, and no matter how we have failed, by God's doing, we can declare we are His children in Christ and we can rise up with confidence. We can declare boldly that it's by God's doing I am His child in Christ Jesus and He has given me the right to act like it. He's given me the right to depend upon Him as my Heavenly Father and He's given me the right to approach him boldly as his child, even when I have failed. Beloved, if you have been born of God, then that is how God wants you to live the Christian life. With boldness and with confidence, being assured of his love and his faithfulness to you as his child. Now in some of us, this kind of assurance is really hard to attain. And I think it may be primarily because we have not yet been assured that we truly have been born of God yet. 
Some of us never reach this kind of assurance with God, this kind of boldness and confidence through the gospel, because we never come to the point where we can confidently say, I know God has made me new. I know I've been born by his power. I'm going to say it at the end as a caution. I want to say it right now. Just because you do not have assurance does not mean that you are lost. Okay? You guys heard how strongly I spoke about that man who said, if you're not 100% sure that you're saved, no, if you're 99% sure that you're saved, you're 100% lost. That is a damnable heresy. It, it is a distortion of the gospel, and I hate it. That's not what I'm saying here. You can be a true believer and not have assurance of being a believer. But I think what I'm trying to get at is that the power to live the Christian life the way God intends for you to live the Christian life only comes when you are assured that you are a child of God. And I think that's exactly the connection that John is introducing to us here in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Assurance to act as children of God is for those who have been born of God. You notice that connection in 13. It's those who have been born of God who have come to Christ. And what does Christ give to those who come to Him? He gives them the right, He gives them the authority to become children of God. Well, wait a second. They're already born of God. Doesn't that mean they're already children of God? Well, yes, it does. But don't throw the baby out, right? It also says in verse 12 that you have a right to become a child of God. To live in the fullness of being a child of God. That's what it's getting at. So, if assurance and the power to live the Christian life comes from being assured that we're truly born of God, how then do we know if we have been born of God? Well, primarily, there's one simple answer that we're given in these verses, and it boils down to this. How can I know if I'm a child of God? Well, answer this question. How do I respond to the revelation of God given to us in Christ Jesus? How do I know if I've been born of God? Well, the answer to that question is found in answering another question. How do you respond to Jesus Christ? This is key to gaining assurance. Because this is the starting point of all of our sense of assurance in God. You know, so often when people are seeking after assurance of salvation in God, most of the time, the first place they look is for evidence of some kind of a static, ecstatic or special experience that they had with God in order to give them assurance of being saved in God. And I want to be clear, there is room for that in the Christian life. There is a place in the Christian life for Christians to pursue greater confidence of having been saved by looking at their experiences with God. John's going to get to that in John chapter 4, for example, 14:23, or excuse me, John chapter 14. In verse 23, he says, if you keep my commandments, I will come to you, my Father will come to you, and we will make our abode with you. That's experiential language. There's a place for that in the Christian life, but that is not the substance of what it means to have assurance of salvation in Christ, nor is that the beginning point where we begin to ask ourselves whether we have truly been born of God. We don't look to our experiences. We look to this one question, how do we respond to the claims of Jesus? 
Now, this is the kind of response to Jesus, or excuse me, the kind of response to Jesus that is the fruit of the new birth is described in John chapter 1, verse 12 in two ways. Number one, it's described as uh, receiving Jesus. And secondly, it's described as believing in Jesus. Those who have truly been born of God are those who have received Jesus Christ as the light of God. And those who have received Jesus Christ as the light of God are those who are believing in Jesus Christ as the light of God. Now let me mention a couple of things about these two statements. First, in one sense, these two concepts of receiving and believing are similar, and they help to define each other. So to, to receive Jesus Christ means that you are believing in him. To believe in Jesus Christ means you have received him. But I want you to pay attention to the slight difference that exists between these two words here in this, in this verse. Notice that received at the beginning of verse 12 is past tense. But as many as received him. That's something that has happened already in the past. It is a completed action. Notice how believe is described or is presented. Believe is not in the past tense. Believe is in the present tense. It is something that is continuing to happen right now in the present. So if a person has truly received Christ in the past, he or she will continue believing in Christ in the present. And if a person is truly believing on Christ in the present, it is because he or she has genuinely received Christ in the past. The presence of the one proves the genuineness of the other. Okay? So I just want to point that out. That's not a major topic of the sermon today, but I couldn't pass that over without mentioning it. Now, a second thing, let me, a second thing to point out about these two words, receiving and believing. These two facets of a saving relationship with Christ highlight two necessary results that will be present in our lives if we have truly experienced the new birth. These two things are counted as fruits that come about in the life of a person who has been born of God. If we've truly been born of God, then these two fruits will be present. We will have the fruit of faith, first of all. We will be believing in Jesus. And let me clarify, when I'm talking about faith here, I'm not talking about a decision or a choice that someone has made. I'm talking about faith as an awakening. Faith as a state of existence where you have been brought into a state where you see things that were unseen to you before. With the eyes of faith. This is Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence or the proof of things not seen. That's how I'm understanding faith. This fruit of believing in Jesus is more than just making a choice to believe in Jesus. It is being awakened by the Holy Spirit to see the truth about Jesus. That causes you to understand that he is true. So this fruit of faith will be present in those who have been born of God. And then secondly, 
that faith will drive us to definitively and sincerely receive Jesus Christ as the truth. So there will be a spiritual perception accompanying those who have been born of God, and there will be a sincere reception of Jesus in those who have been born of God. Am I clear there? I feel like I lost all of you on that. No? You're with me. Okay. Let me not judge by mere appearance. Man, I cannot believe what time it is. These are the two things that I want to talk about today. How can we know if we've been born again? Well, first of all, we will have an awakened spiritual perception about Christ. And then secondly, we will have a sincere reception of Christ as Lord. And those two things will manifest to us whether we've truly been born of God. One more qualifier here before we launch into that. I want you to notice what this signals to us concerning the nature of the new birth and how we experience the new birth. Our experience of the new birth is largely and perhaps exclusively known in our experience of its fruit, not in our experience of the act itself. The act of being born of God is imperceptible. You don't know exactly when the Lord caused new life to flood your soul and bring you out of your death and into life in Christ. You, you can't tell exactly what that was. A lot of people think you can look at some experience and say, that was God causing me to be born again. Well, that's not necessarily the case. It may have been at that time that God caused you to be born again. But the experience was not the act itself. The experience was the fruit of that act already having been performed. So when someone has been born of God, someone has been brought to new life through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that person will experience the reality of the new birth is not in the act itself, it's in the fruit that that act bears. And that fruit being in this passage, believing and receiving Jesus Christ. So, so, as we ask the question, how can I know if I've been born of God? Partly, that answer will be discovered by discerning whether these two markers of the new birth can be found in our lives. Do we have this spiritual awakening that enables us to perceive the truth about Christ? And do we have a genuine and sincere reception of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we sincerely received Him by faith? So let's look at those two things as briefly as possible. Have you experienced this spiritual awakening of faith? Well, to answer that question, you have to ask another question. How would I know if I've experienced this spiritual awakening of faith? Well, the best way to seek to discover that is to look for the evidence in your life that proves that you have been spiritually awakened by God. When God causes someone to be awakened out of their deadness and sin and brought to see the light of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, there are certain markers that will be present in that person's life.
So what are those evidences? What are those markers? I will briefly mention three of those evidences. It's important to know that these three evidences will be present in the life of every person who has truly been born of God. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, and I'm not treating any of these exhaustively, but these markers will be present. Number one, how do you know if you've been spiritually awakened? How do you know if you've received faith as a fruit of being born of God? Number one evidence of the new birth, bringing about this awakening in your life. Number one, it will be revealed by a radical change in the way you think about sin. The new birth will be revealed by a radical change. The spiritual awakening will be revealed by a radical change in the way you think about sin. And we've pointed out so many times already that what characterizes us in our state of darkness is a deep, heartfelt attachment to sin. We love evil and we hate the light. That's the language of John 3, 19 and 20. We take pleasure in wickedness, right? 2 Thessalonians 2, 12. We give hearty approval to every expression of lawlessness, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those around us. That's the end of Romans chapter 1. In our, in our fallen state, in our ruined state in sin, in our darkness, we have a delight and a pleasure in sin. We're conceived in sin and in iniquity we are brought forth. We're going astray in our sin from the womb, the Psalms tell us. We came forth doing evil deeds and loving the evil that we choose to do. Sin was so natural to us that even the thought of choosing not to sin was surprising and strange to us. You can see that in 1 Peter 4.4, where the Gentiles look upon those who have been delivered out of their sin, and they think it a strange thing that they no longer want to run with them in the paths of sin. What in the world's that about? Well, that's what we are in our fallen state. Utterly incapable of thinking about not living in sin. But when we are spiritually awakened to see the truth about Christ... Our spiritual eyes are enabled to see the truth about sin. Let me show three ways that this will manifest. First of all, it will manifest as a conviction over sin. John 16.8 tells us that this is the first evidence that the Holy Spirit is bringing the saving work of Christ to our lives. He will come to us and He will convict us of sin. In the light of God's righteousness and the judgment to come. Now this spirit birth conviction over sin is more than just feeling bad about the fact that you have sinned. It's not simply feeling sorry that you were caught in sin, nor is it simply recognizing that you did something wrong. You guys may remember that Judas manifested all of that whenever he tried to turn back from betraying our Lord over to, to death. In Matthew 27, 3 through 4, it tells us that he experienced remorse over betraying Christ, and he even recognized that what he had done was wrong. He even sought to turn away from it. But that was not the expression of true godly conviction over sin that accompanies one who has been spiritually awakened by God. 
When the Holy Spirit brings true conviction of sin upon us, it produces within us a deep contrition of our souls. A holy sense of guilt before God and before the perfect, holy, and good standards of His law. See, when you are spiritually awakened by God, you not only recognize the reality of how evil your sin is, but you recognize it in the light of how good and right and perfect God's law is. You have this sense, this awakening that, wow, I have not only run in these evil ways, but I deserve exactly what the law of God decrees that I deserve. As Romans 6.21 says it, When we are given this conviction by the Spirit of God, we are filled with a sense of shame over the things that we used to do. That's conviction. It's not just remorse over something that you've done. It's a a sense of shame, utter shamefulness over what you've done. So whether we're saved out of lying or talking about stealing or dishonoring our parents or whether we're talking about coveting what belongs to someone else, their property, their blessings, their husband, their wife. Or maybe even the bigger sins of not believing in and loving God with all of our heart, not worshiping Him with all of our lives and taking His name in vain upon our lips. When true conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, we are filled with shame over the things that we have done. Ezekiel 36.31 describes this conviction of of the Spirit as a self-loathing once we see the evil deeds that we have committed against the Lord. We are so filled with disgust over what we have done that we actually loathe ourselves because we were the ones that did it. When the Holy Spirit brings spiritual awakening to us, it will always be accompanied by this conviction of our sin which is a sense sense of shame and a sense of guilt over it. So that's one marker of having a changed relationship to sin. You'll have conviction over your sin. Secondly, that spirit-wrought conviction will bring to you, or excuse me, will bring you to repentance from that sin. So true conviction of sin that was begun by the Holy Spirit will always lead to repentance from sin. You see this in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul was grateful that when these Corinthians were made sorrowful over their sins, he was thankful that that sorrow had produced in them repentance. So you have this reality of conviction of sin that's manifested in sorrow, leading these believers to repent of that sin, right? True conviction from the Holy Spirit will always produce repentance from sin in a person's life. And then you notice how 2 Corinthians 7.11 describes what that repentance looked like. It was accompanied by earnestness in their repentance. It was accompanied by a sense of vindication, desiring to prove themselves genuine believers and innocent in this matter. There was a desire of, or there was a manifestation of indignation and a hatred over the sins that they had committed. There was a fear of God that drove them appropriately to turn away from their sin and to turn away from the things for which God's wrath is coming and to pursue paths of holiness and righteousness for His namesake. 
There was a godly fear that was wrought in them by the Spirit of God. There was a longing to see things made right. There was a zeal to do it quickly and fully. And there was an avenging of the wrong that they themselves have done. And that's an amazing statement. They were the ones that committed the sin. And yet here it says they were filled with a sense or a desire to avenge the wrong that they themselves had done. They were seeking to make it right. They were seeking to bring the standards of justice to bear upon their own actions. And to make things right with the ones whom they had wronged. This is what true, genuine spirit birth repentance looks like. It's not merely a change of mind. It's a radical redirection of a person's entire being away from sin and towards the Lord. That is a sure sign of having experienced spiritual awakening. That you not only feel the conviction over sin, but you seek with all of your being to turn away from it. Now, one more that manifests the presence of this change of, of, in our thoughts towards sin. In relation to sin, a spiritual awakening is not temporary, it's permanent. If you've been given genuine conviction by the Holy Spirit over your sin, it not only will lead you to repent of that sin, but that change will be permanent. It will not be temporary. So we're not talking about a momentary sense of regret when we're talking about conviction over sin, but a permanent and definitive break in your love affair with sin. It's most clearly described, in my opinion, in Galatians 5.24, when it talks of those who have, who have been made, who have been brought into union with Christ, it speaks of them as having crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, to be crucified is not a temporary death. It's not a momentary death. Having these passions and these desires to run in the path of sin, for the believer, it's something that has been put definitively to death. It doesn't mean that you're never going to stumble in sin as a believer. It doesn't mean you're never going to be tempted or drawn after sin as a believer. But it does mean that there was this definitive break that has happened in your relationship with sin, such that you can no longer run in the paths of sin and still enjoy it. You no longer sense pleasure and delight in living in the ways that are contrary to the will of the Lord. Those passions and those desires have been crucified. The same language is in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's only one answer to that question. If, well, there are two answers. Those who have died to sin can no longer live in their sin. And if you can still live in your sin, then you have not yet died to it. It's just that simple. If we have died to sin, we can no longer live in that sin. And that will be a mark that we've truly been brought to a state of being spiritually awakened in Christ we can't relate to our sin the same way anymore. So if we're trying to discern if we've experienced spiritual awakening, awakening, we can start by asking, what is my relationship to sin? Can I sin and live in sin without experiencing conviction over it? Please listen to me. Please listen. I want everybody to just look up at me. 
I'm feeling uncomfortable because the time is just flying by. I want to confess that. I want to repent of that. I am tired of living by the clock. If you need to leave, then leave, okay? If you're bored, then, then go. It's fine. But I need to preach this because you need to hear this. All right? So I, I just want to rebuke the enemy. I want to rebuke my own flesh. I want to correct whatever wrong has been made so far in preaching, and I want to try and make it right. If you are trying to discern whether or not you have been spiritually awakened by the Spirit of God, you can start by asking, what is my relationship to sin? If you can sin and not feel convicted over it, you are lost. What I mean by that is not if you stumble and have a temporary moment where you don't feel conviction, that means you're lost. No, that's not what I mean by that. If you have stumbled in sin and you are never brought to the point where you are convicted over that sin, you are an unbeliever. Because the Holy Spirit brings the first measure of conviction of sin to those whom He's saving. So if you can sin and never feel convicted, then that means the Spirit of God's not working in you. Right? Is there sorrow that you experience when you sin? Is, excuse me, is the sorrow that you do experience when you sin, is that sorrow enough to cause you to turn away from your sin? And has this break with sin continued in your life? Or is that break with sin slowly passing away and you're becoming more and more comfortable with the sin you thought the Lord had saved you from? That's a sign of backsliding. And if you don't repent of backsliding, you're going straight to apostasy. So number one, we're trying to discern whether we've experienced a spiritual awakening. Number one, what is our view of sin? How do we relate to it? Number two, a second way to discern whether you have experienced spiritual awakening of faith is to examine your thoughts about Christ. What do you think about Christ? What do you think about Jesus? Maybe it's better to, to put it this way. What do you see when you look at Christ as He's revealed to us in His Word? What do you see when you read in the Word about Jesus, when you read about His life, when you read about His ministry, when you read about His death, when you hear His teachings being presented to you in the Word of God? What do you see when you look there? If you see nothing but flatness, if you see nothing that's interesting, if you are utterly indifferent when you can look at Jesus in His Word, there's no desire or compulsion to seek His face through what is revealed to us in the Scriptures, then my friend, you have not yet come to the point where you have tasted His glory enough that makes you want more. You're not at the point where, where Jeremiah was as a believer where he says, I was called by your name, therefore I longed for your word and it became to me the joy and the delight of my heart because I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. If you have no desire to read the Word of God, you don't see anything glorious about Jesus when you are in the pages of Scripture, then you have not yet been spiritually awakened by the Holy Spirit. 
What happens when the Spirit of God comes upon someone? What happens when we are made to be born again? We have a radical shift in our view of Christ. That's what happens. 1 Corinthians 1.18. You remember these, these categories given to us in this whole chapter. The word of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. Those who are lost. Those who are on their way to hell. Those who are estranged from God. Those who love their sin and do not delight in righteousness. The word of the cross is foolishness to them. But notice, the word of the cross is the power of God to who? To those who are being saved. So when you hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, do you hear power? Do you sense wisdom? Do you hear might of God in there bringing you to salvation? Or do you sense foolishness? Ridiculousness? A stumbling block? Disinterested? That will manifest whether or not you've been spiritually awakened by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24 it says Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Gentiles, meaning it's utterly ridiculous. It's nonsense to them. But to those who have experienced the spiritual awakening, described here as those who are the called, those who are the called, Christ is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Christ crucified for our salvation may be foolishness to the world, but for those who are brought into union with Christ, Christ becomes to them our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. In other words, for those who are united to Christ, Christ becomes all. Christ becomes everything to them in their relationship to God. Is that you? Is Christ your all? When you look to Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a way of salvation or do you see the way of salvation? There's an eternity of difference between those two statements. Do you see Jesus as a prophet sent from God? Or do you see Jesus as the prophet who is the fullness of God? Do you see a lowly carpenter or do you see the Lord of glory? Do you see a good teacher or do you see Messiah King? Do you see foolishness and nonsense or do you see the very wisdom and power of God manifested to save you? What do you perceive about Jesus with the eyes of your heart? It's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember this. Right at the beginning, when Christian is fleeing from the city of destruction and doesn't know where he's going to go, which way to head, how, do I, how can I find deliverance from the destruction that's coming upon this city? Evangelist comes to him and says, Christian, do you see the wicked gate over there? Do you see that gate way over there? Christian says, no, I don't see the gate. And evangelist responds to him and says, well, wait, do you see the light shining around that gate? Do you see something over there that you can run to? And Christian says, oh, I, I think I see that light. And evangelist says, keep that shining light in your eye and run to the gate and knock on the door until they let you in. Okay. 
when you look to Jesus, even if you can't make everything out perfectly, do you see the light shining about him? Do you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God being revealed to us through this person called Jesus? Or is it just blank to you? This is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is the light that God speaks into the darkness of our hearts. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of our God shining in Christ's face. So the first sign that we've been, one of the first signs that we've been spiritually awakened by God through the new birth is that we have been able to see, we have been enabled to see the light and the glory of Jesus. When we look at him, we see in him the glory of God. When we look at him, we see his beauty and his love. We see his compassion. And we see his worthiness. And we are drawn to him. At times it may seem small, it may seem like a glimmer or just a twinkling of glory that we see in Jesus. But nevertheless, we still see something in him that draws us after him to see more. That's the mark of a true believer. Number three, try and be quicker on this one. If you have been spiritually awakened, your perception of sin will not only change, what you see in Jesus will be different, but also you will be granted an inner delight in God and in God's ways. This is a definitive sign that a person has experienced a spiritual awakening through the new birth. 2 Thessalonians 2.12, it tells us that the mark of the ungodly is that they delight in unrighteousness. They take pleasure in unrighteousness. Therefore, the mark of a believer is just the opposite. If the mark of an unbeliever is that they take pleasure in wickedness, the mark of a believer would be just the opposite. They no longer take pleasure in wickedness. They take pleasure in righteousness. They no longer take pleasure in the things of the world. They take pleasure in the things of God. Psalm 119, verses 69 through 70, describes it this way. The ungodly have hearts that are unfeeling like fat when it comes to the law of God, when it comes to God's word and God's ways. But the believer, for the believer, the believer can confess, God and his ways are my delight. They're what I, they're what I take delight in. Psalm 119, verse 111. How does the psalmist know that God's testimony is his inheritance forever? How does he gain assurance of salvation in God? He says, I know because God's word is the joy of my heart. How does he know that God has secured him in salvation with him forever? The psalmist says, I know because I delight in his word. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-3 through 3 extends this even further to say that those who have been born of God not only delight in His Word, but they delight in doing His Word. 
We are his children. We love God and we love his children when we keep, when we keep his commandments. And it says in verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Now, as you think about keeping God's law, you think about keeping his commandments in Christ, is that a burden to you or is that a delight to you? Do you have a heart that rejoices in righteousness or do you have a heart that is burdened by doing righteousness? That will manifest a lot about your spiritual state. It's like what W.G.T. Shedd said. He said, the, re the renewing of the sinful and self-enslaved will results in the Holy Spirit empowering it to choose God as its chief good and supreme end. When you have been brought to spiritual awakening, when you have been made new and born of God, the Spirit of God enables you to see God as your greatest goal and then to choose to run after God as your supreme end. The glory of God. You find an example of this in Jonathan Edwards. When he spoke about being born again, he spoke of it as an inward, sweet delight in divine things. That there was a change in his heart where it wasn't just that he knew the right he had to do and he needed to go try and do it. He delighted in the things of God. And that was a signal to him that something had changed. You see this in Psalm 73, verses 25 through 28. I'm just going to skip to verse 28. That when everything else in life is failing for the believer, the believer can still hold fast with joy and delight and declare to God, you alone are my good. You are my good. You are the portion of my cup. You are my inheritance forever, Psalm 16. This is not to say that in the lives of true believers, there will not be many low times when we struggle to find joy in the Lord. But even then, for the believer, the joy of the Lord continues to drive you forward after attaining more. Because you've already tasted that joy. And when you are in a low season of not tasting it, because you've already tasted it before, it simply drives you to keep pressing towards God for more. That is a sign of a true believer. All right, so that's point one with all the subpoints. Point two. There will not only be a spiritual awakening in your life that looks like these signs, but there will also be a manifest, sincere, genuine reception of Jesus Christ as Lord. John 1.12, there will be a receiving of Christ that is definitive and that is once and for all. I just want to run through this. Hebrews 6 makes clear that there is a level of spiritual experience with the Spirit and a measure of spiritual perception that is real and yet is not enough to save you. Because you can taste of the heavenly gift, you can be made a partaker of the Holy Spirit, you can taste of the powers and the goodness of the Word of God and the age to come, and still at the end of it, according to verse 6, fall away and have no room for repentance. You can have deep spiritual experiences with God in the Christian life and still not be saved. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they never really were of us. They experienced something in Jesus that was enough to draw them into the church, but not enough to keep them faithful to Christ. The sure evidence of the new birth as a reality in a person's soul is what we call conversion. 
It is the actual fleeing away from sin and the actual clinging to Christ. It's not an experience that we're holding fast to. It's not cleaning up our life that we're holding fast to. It is Christ Himself that the believer is holding fast to when he is converted. The actual act of receiving Christ with a sincere heart through faith and repentance, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about receiving Christ. Those who are born of God, who received Christ Jesus as the light of God, they are those who have cast themselves by faith upon Him, believing in who He is and believing in what He has done to save them, and then relying upon Him personally to be their Savior. Now, in closing, if you can walk through these tests, looking at the proofs of being born again and say, I see all of these in my life, maybe not perfectly, but I see some measure of them in me, If you can say that, if you can say that I see evidence of true spiritual awakening in my life, and I see with a I can say with a clean conscience that I am owning Christ as my Savior, then you should be encouraged that you have become a child of God. These evidences and these fruits prove that God has done a saving work in your life, even if you don't feel like He's done that saving work in your life. You are His child if these fruits are evident in you. And if you are His child, now, in faith, you need to rise up and live like it. You need to take hold of the authority that God's given you as His child, and you need to live in the fullness of it. Don't give in to the devil's deceptions. Don't give in to his lies. Don't give in to the ways that he tries to make you doubt the goodness of God towards you or his love towards you or his compassion or his willingness to forgive you of the most heinous sins that you have committed. Don't give in to the devil's lies that tell you you can't trust in God to save you. That's a ploy to keep you trapped in the darkness. It's like what Isaiah 60 says, rise and shine for the light of God has shone upon you. You need to take hold of the fullness of hope that you have in Jesus Christ and let go of the lies that you are choosing to believe. It's always going to come down to this. Will you trust God's Word or will you trust your emotions? Will you trust God's Word or will you trust the devil's lies? It's that simple and that is where assurance is found. Will you take God at His Word? Will you believe Him when He says, if you call upon Me, I've got an abundance of loving kindness that I'm ready to pour out upon you. I'm ready to forgive anyone who calls upon Me. Will you believe that promise when you call upon Him in the midst of your darkness and sin? Will you believe that God swears to you, I will receive you if you come to Me in Christ. I will not cast you out. Will you believe Him enough to go to Him despite what you feel? Despite what you think, just take God at His word. Will you do that? If you can see these marks of the new birth in your life, if you see evidence of being born again of God's Spirit in your life, then that is exactly how God has called you to live. With that kind of boldness and that kind of confidence in Him. If these markers are not fruits that you can see in your life, then my friend, you need to recognize that you have not yet experienced the new birth.
And until you do, you will end under God's judgment, trapped in your darkness. What should you do if you don't see any of these fruits in your life? Well, first of all, don't presume upon God and think that He'll save you despite what you know to be true about yourself. God is kind and He's patient, but His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so if God is being patient with us by giving us life and breath, and yet we're not saved, that's His patience towards us, and we shouldn't think of it lightly. Do not presume upon God, but rather flee to God in repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Run to Him and keep running until He assures you that He has made you His child and that you have been born of His Spirit. You either do that or you stop and you go to hell. Those are your only two options. You seek God until He saves you or you bust the gates of hell open. That's it. Now let me close with two brief cautions to throw out there. This is a long stretch. If you need to, it's fine. Two brief cautions, and I want you to hear me. As we are seeking for assurance of salvation and assurance of being born of God, there are two things we need to keep in mind. Number one, assurance is not the essence of faith. Assurance is not the essence of faith. Believing in Christ for salvation is not the same as having assurance of salvation in Him. Some truly believe in Christ without assurance. And some have assurance without having true faith. The essence of saving faith is not in assurance. Saving faith is manifest. It is, in other words, it's present where there is a genuine repentance of sin and a sincere, heartfelt commitment to Christ. If you have that evidence of the new birth present in your life, then you ought to be encouraged because as we've been seeing, that evidence was not produced by you. That fruit was not born by your own will. That is an evidence of God's saving work having been done in you. You should be encouraged by that. But I wanted to say, assurance is not the essence of faith. And then secondly, our experience of the new birth will be different from one another's experience. What I mean by experience, our experience of the fruit of the new birth even will be different in its context and in its circumstances. We all go wrong when we begin to judge God's dealings in our own lives by comparing ourselves or comparing them with God's dealings in the lives of other people. Each one of us, each one of you is a unique person created in the image of God and God has determined uniquely to walk with you in relationship with you. In other words, there are unique experiences that you are going to have with God that God has not determined to give to other people. You cannot judge your relationship with God based upon someone else's relationship with God. 
That's not biblical. In fact, we have a rebuke of that right at the end of the Gospel of John, don't we? When Peter turns to Jesus in reference to John and says, well, hey, what are you going to do in his life? If this is what you're going to do in my life, what are you going to do in his life? Jesus looks at him and says, it's none of your business what I'm going to do in his life. You just need to focus on this. You need to focus on following me. So often we go wrong because we begin comparing ourselves by ourselves and we fall into a trap thinking that God's dealings with someone else is exactly what should be God's dealings with me. And that's not the case. As you seek to discern evidence of of the new birth in your life, here's the rule that you need to live by. Spiritual life is the proof of the spiritual birth. Not experience. Spiritual life is the proof of spiritual birth. Not everyone can discern a specific moment in time when they were born again, and not everyone can necessarily even distinguish a particular season of time when the Lord caused them to be born again. And that is okay. You don't have to know the moment, the exact moment of your spiritual birth in order to be saved any more than you have to know the exact time of your physical birth in order to be alive. Inability to discern the moment of the new birth is not what ultimately matters. What ultimately matters is whether you can discern the presence of spiritual life in you. If you have spiritual life present in you, then God has birthed that life in you. And you are his child. So keep these two things in mind as you seek after assurance. And uh, my prayer is that the Lord will bring each of you the conviction that you need, the rebuke that you need, the encouragement that you need, the assurance that you need that you are among those who have been born of God. So as we discern the presence of true faith and new birth in us. May the Lord fill each of us with joy and peace in believing. And may he continue granting us repentance that leads to life. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray for this great blessing. And uh, we trust in you, Lord. We know that even in our imperfections, your perfection shines forth. God, I pray that your word would do its work in us, that we would be encouraged and strengthened, that you would enable us to follow after you, Lord, with sound minds, pure hearts, holy ambitions to be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for the benediction, would you hear it from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May we go forth with faith and patience and labor unto full assurance until we inherit the promises. May you go in the peace of the Lord.